0: We've come full circle now, coming back to the purification of our virtue, which was the beginning of this pathway, but not that it is the ending of the past because That you heard already this morning. But it needs elaboration. And the elaboration on our purification of virtue are what are called the five precepts. Some of you are familiar with them. The Buddha did not tell us that we mustn't do things or shall not do things or that we would fall into some dreadful states but he said we need to undertake a training. So these precepts are worded I undertake the training to refrain from and It's a commitment. It's a commitment to train oneself. They are also not for the benefit of other beings. That is a secondary consideration which happens automatically. Therefore, our own purification. If we protect ourselves, we protect others. And if we protect ourselves from doing harm, then obviously everyone else is protected by that. And if we protect ourselves from doing harm, then no harm comes to us, because our karma is then kept intact on a good, in a good direction. There's more to keeping the five precepts than meets the eye. They sound extremely simple, like practically all of the Buddhist teachings sound simple. But it's not only that they sound simple and are, are not that easy, but besides refraining from doing certain things, we need to develop their opposites. And when we do that, we have already a spiritual path laid out for ourselves, which will require remembrance, mindfulness, energy, and quite a bit of substituting that what we usually think and do for something more wholesome. The Buddha said that any spiritual path worth its name, worth following, has to include those five precepts. If it doesn't, then there's not enough attention being paid for the to the um, protection of oneself and other beings. This protection that we afford ourselves when we do no harm creates a feeling of safety within us. This is a very insecure life. Being a human being is extremely difficult. Being a human good human being is even more difficult. And because of that difficulty we don't feel secure. There's always something that isn't totally taken care of. This insecurity shows itself in many ways in us in restlessness and worry, in wanting more or wanting different things. But if we know with certainty that we, that we have protected ourselves from doing any harm and have thereby protected other beings, we have already a basis for feeling confident. And this confidence then shows itself also in our meditation and in our acquiring wisdom. Confidence of knowing that we're doing the best thing we can, that since we were correct in our behavior, there is no reason to assume that we're incorrect in our meditation. And by the same token, There's no reason to assume that we are incorrect in our understanding of some realities which we may not have paid attention to before. In other words, a feeling of security within oneself, independence arises which does not necessitate A constant support system from outside, we are supporting ourselves. We are at ease with ourselves. For keeping these precepts is a ways and means of building a foundation for ourselves on which we build up our character, our life support as karma the direction in our life and the sincerity of our spiritual practice if we don't keep the precepts we are not sincere in our practice it's a training and as all trainings one becomes more skillful at it as one practices longer When we break a precept, we can look at it as a lack of skill. If it isn't intentional, but if it is something that was due to renewed greed or hate, it's lack of skill. The first precept says that we undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. That includes all living beings and there are certain difficulties when other living beings seem to invade one's own living quarters. If we can manage with them, that's fine. If we can't, we have to make up our own mind. However, not to kill is a way of reducing our hate. We don't kill what we love, we kill what we hate. So we're reducing that innate hate which comes from our delusion. It's not enough to do just that. We need to develop loving-kindness within, which is the opposite. Loving kindness and compassion. It's interesting to see that the far enemy of compassion is of course cruelty, but the near enemy is pity. Have pity with someone else is separating ourselves from the other person. We are feeling some pity in the heart for the other person's bad situation, but have no connection to that situation. We have most likely a feeling, I'm so sorry for you, but I'm really glad it isn't me. It is quite akin to a feeling of not only separation, but also superiority. Whereas compassion is entirely different. Compassion means that we have already seen our own dukkha understood it, and noticed and practiced a way out of it. And when we have seen our own Dukkha and practiced our own way out of it, then compassion can arise with the person that hasn't seen the way out of it, is enmeshed in it, and we have a way of helping because we can show a way out of it. Now, people often like to help others without having the slightest notion on how to do it. If we have a wish to help others in a material, physical way, and we have the material things to help with, that's fine. But if we want to help others with their emotions and problems and we haven't got out of our own yet it's highly unlikely that that help is going to amount to anything if we want to give a poor person some money we first have to have that money if we want to give somebody some help with their problems we first have to know how to solve those problems for ourselves compassion does not necessarily have to have that pathway of help in it but it absolutely requires knowing one's own dukkha and realizing that this is a matter we have to solve ourselves that nobody is going to get us out of it the Buddha's compassion Showed itself that when people approached him for help, any kind of help, he showed them the Dhamma. He showed them the truth. He didn't give momentary help because he knew that that was going to help them forever. So, The opposite of killing living beings is having love and compassion for them. The more we have already solved our own inner conflicts, the easier it is to give love and the easier it is to have compassion which will be helpful. Showing the way out of problems in the way of the Buddhist teaching needs to have the Dhamma embedded in it, which means that we are constantly put back on our own resources. Keeping precepts, practicing the opposite it's entirely up to each person. Nobody can do it for us. The whole of the path is exactly like that. It's entirely up to each person. As long as you think that there's somebody else involved in this whole aspect of our life, other than being actors on the same stage we haven't started to practice we are constantly saying our own lines it has nothing to do with the actors that are happening to be in the same place the development of love and compassion of course needs to take place in daily life The loving-kindness meditation is supposed to be a trigger, a remembrance, a reminder, but nothing else. It needs to take place in our daily activities. The best way to learn loving-kindness is through someone one can't stand. To make it possible To love that person, in spite of all the differences that one has, that really brings it home. If one practices with that person, that other person doesn't have to know anything about it, and probably doesn't anyway, but if one practices with that other person as one's target, and again and again realizes, that he or she is having the same kind of dukkha as oneself and every time something comes out of that person which is either unacceptable or unpleasant the dukkha has increased at that time for that person one will eventually be able to arouse compassion with that other person's dukkha primarily also Because one has learned by that time that not having compassion, but having dislike, only hurts oneself. It's very unpleasant to dislike anybody. And having learned that, one can very truthfully call oneself a fool if one continues to do it. Because one only creates unpleasant feelings for oneself. One is always tempted to say it's that nasty person that's creating the unpleasant feeling. But it isn't. It's one's own reaction. That nasty person is creating unpleasant feelings for him or herself. It's a wonderful opportunity to really arouse loving kindness and compassion if one has such a nasty person around one should be utterly
1: grateful.
0: Unfortunately, most people aren't. On the contrary, they also get nasty. But that doesn't help a thing, does it? Then we've got two nasties instead of one. In retrospect, once one has overcome one's reaction, of this life and really have managed to feel compassion then one realizes that one has something to be grateful for that that was that one and only opportunity to really practice that which is difficult one hardly ever if ever would do it for the benefit of that other unpleasant person such altruistic ideas are far from most people but if one doesn't do it for one's own benefit one has yet to learn what it means to be one's own best friend that is what we practice for for our own benefit everybody else naturally has benefit too but the first and foremost benefit is our own if we can arouse loving kindness and compassion for a person whom we don't agree with whose behavior we don't appreciate who seems to put us down who doesn't seem to like us. We have also taken an important step in human relationships to appreciate our differences and not only to look for our likenesses. Obviously we all have things in common but we also have great differences. And if we don't appreciate them we are limiting ourselves to those people who seem to have similar tastes and similar beliefs that could get very boring. It reduces arguments naturally and it reduces, it reduces also an input of things of which we are ignorant it's very important to learn that our differences make life far more interesting than our likenesses loving kindness and compassion when, a, when actually practiced. Become a way of being, but they are not to be confused with being always agreeable and totally sweet. (laughs) That's actually wanting to be liked, that's another ego support. Sure, we all play that game, or have played it anyway, at one time or another. We'd like our ego to be supported, so we are agreeable. We say yes to things we either, either don't know, or don't care about, or don't like, but still do it. And try to become acceptable. It's very interesting that that can be done in an entirely different manner without having to become untrue to oneself and yet still be loving and kind this will be explained in more detail at the fourth precept however our inner lovingness and compassion increase with more insight. As we see ourselves less of a threatened individual and more of a part of the universe, it becomes easier and easier to love all these different particles that are moving about in the shapes of men and women, of being big or small, thick or thin. It's all part of the universe. And it becomes much, much easier. And if there's real compassion, as in the Buddha, as there was in the Buddha, then the necessary aspect of that is to try and show a way which we ourselves have found. Now that may not always be the easiest thing for either the one who's showing or the one who's been shown but at least if that way is then used it guarantees success out of yoga. So not only do we try not to kill any living beings, quite apart from not killing humans, other living beings, but we also try to arouse in ourselves this feeling of togetherness, of warmth, of non-separation and Showing the way out of dukkha. The second one is we undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given, which is just a little more than stealing. Stealing entails something big, but not taking what is not given includes all small things also. But the opposite of that is even more significant. The opposite is giving instead of taking. Generosity. Generosity is mentioned by the Buddha as the first of the ten paramis, the ten virtues, which take one beyond. The word parami means that what takes us beyond. And if we don't have generosity, we haven't got an entry to the other virtues. Generosity means that we no longer want to keep for ourselves but have got an inkling that everything we have is only on loan and that we might as well pass it around. The Buddha gave three different kinds of generosity The generosity of a beggar, the generosity of a friend, and the generosity of a king. The generosity of a beggar is when we give that away which we don't want anyway. All the old stuff that's been hiding in the cupboards for years. Big clean (laughs) up. The generosity of a friend is when we share when it has finally dawned on us that it doesn't mean that we have less if we give some of it away it remains in the universe and it can be put to good use if we have a bit of wisdom and it also means that we are no longer the only person that we are concerned about. We have begun to be concerned about the well-being of others. The generosity of a king means that one gives away more than one keeps, which is rather rare, and it usually ends up by making the person famous, if it becomes known. The Buddha also said that the purity of the receiver Purifies the gift. In other words, if we use a bit of wisdom that we give where it is meaningful, where one can assume that the gift will be used for benefit of maybe many, maybe benefit of the Dhamma, maybe the benefit of helping innocent victims then the gift is purified by that and it means also that the gift then is a very worthwhile gift because it's been given to a worthwhile cause whatever that worthwhile cause is our own wisdom will have to tell us We all have a fair bit of wisdom on hand, if we were just to look inside, we can find it. Generosity is so important because it's our first step to reduce our egocentricity. If we can't be generous with our belongings, maybe with our wealth, with our time, our skills, our love, but want to hoard it and keep it, surround ourselves with it. It means that we have no inkling of the fact that in reality there is no individual that we're all one and the same which of course if that has happened in the meditative experience would make that much easier but if it hasn't happened we can see it because if some people around us maybe in our nation are living very poorly and it's a great deal of misery all around us that misery will soon overtake us too we can't keep ourselves apart from the rest of the paper and sharing that what we have in material goods is a way of trying to alleviate some immediate suffering. But sharing time, giving our time, is also very important. Many people are looking for somebody to listen to them. That's also generosity. Many people can't listen very well, but like to talk about their own things. So that is also generous to let the other person give their views or their problems. Being available for the benefit of others reduces one's own problems at the time when one is available to nil because we only know what we put our attention on. Now that should have become clear in the meditation. If we have a pain in the knee and we don't put our attention on it but put it on the breath we don't know about that pain in the knee. Naturally we go back with our attention on it. But it is so obvious that we only know where our attention is. So if we are concerned with other people's well-being, our own problems at that time do not exist. Therefore, one of the best antidotes for depression is joy with others. It's so simple, again, it's like a truism. What could be simpler? And yet, once in the depression, People don't even give that any thought. Joy with others is a third of the four sublime emotions. Its um, far enemy is envy. Why doesn't this good thing happen to me? Or jealousy. But its near enemy is hypocrisy giving it lip service saying i'm so glad for you and not meaning a word of it it's just one of those polite statements but the real feeling within the heart of being joyous with other people's joy reduces the possibility of becoming depressed to almost nothing Because there's always something nice going on for somebody. Whether we would appreciate that thing or not has nothing to do with it. Somebody might have a new television set and be really happy about that. And we think, personally, that television sets are silly to have. They're only a big nuisance. That doesn't matter. We're not happy with their television set we are rejoicing in their joy and that reduces any possibility of depression to practically nothing. So depression can therefore be considered to be a state of selfishness because we haven't considered the joy of others. But being joyful with others is also generosity it means that we don't want it for ourselves but you see what happens the minute we have that generosity we have the joy what could be simpler whoever thinks of that well the Buddha did that's why we need his guidelines because he has understood what it means to be a happy and adjusted human being. So this is another way of being generous, to really and truly feel with the other person when they have something nice happening to them. For instance, let's say our meditation was absolutely horrible, couldn't get concentrated at all. Of course, such things don't really happen, but, I mean, we could just um, imagine. (laughs) (laughs) And then we hear somebody asking a question, what to do with the third absorption? (laughs) (laughs) So does joy arise or envy? (laughs) That's where the practice path lies. Joy with others. How wonderful. That person actually got it together. Isn't it marvelous? Now, that takes practice. That doesn't come by itself. The natural reaction is look at that. (laughs) Why can't I do
1: a thing like that? (laughs)
0: Wouldn't you know it? And this is my fifth course. (laughs) That's the natural reaction. But as I've said many times before, who wants to be natural? This is where the problems come from, from being natural. So this is a practice thing. We can immediately see, now when we have been at least forewarned, this is called envy. Of course we justify it. Well, this is the right thing to want, isn't it? I mean, we do want to get I want to get the absorption, must be right. But, sure, but being envious is not the thing to do. That does not produce wholesome feelings. That produces unwholesome feelings. So at that particular moment, when something like this arises, that is a moment when we can actually get in there, inside, and say, Aha, substitute. Substitute the wholesome emotion. And the more often we substitute the wholesome emotion, the easier it is. Because then we're getting used to it. And somebody does have something wonderful happen to them. We already have that habit of having joy. Because we have already noticed it's joyful. Who has the benefit? Only the person who's doing it. Now in the beginning of course we think we're doing it for somebody else. But actually we are having the, our own benefit. So this is also a great possibility for giving. And here we have the proof of the fact that the more we give the more we've got. And again and again, people doubt that and think, wait a minute, that doesn't fit, that doesn't figure out. The more you give, the less you've got. But it doesn't work that way. The more joy with others we give, the more joy we have. The more love we give, the more love we have. The more compassion we give, the more compassion we have. It just can't work any other way. But strangely enough, It works that way too with material things. As we give more and more of them out there seems to be a relationship to what we get according to our needs. It also has something of course to do with the fact that a person who is able to give a fair bit of Material things, does not have such strong wants. And therefore, the letting go of the wants seems to fulfill far more than getting more. So the fulfillment arises within from that too. It's a very important step on this path to practice generosity whenever we have an opportunity. Generosity wherever we can find the opportunity in a way which according to our own discrimination seems to be a way where it will mean something. Meaningful generosity. It should not only be just giving because they are one wants to practice some generosity it needs some discrimination with it the third one is I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct and that means not to hurt anybody through sexual conduct either physically or emotionally and the emotional one of course is the one that has more application. However, the opposite is to be faithful in all our relationships, sexual or otherwise. Loyal, trustworthy, straightforward, not manipulative, because that can be very emotionally um, hurtful someone that's reliable. These are character traits which give us a feeling of being secure. Because we ourselves, if we are like that, we can feel it that we are like that. Whether anybody else knows it, well, that's their problem. But we know we are like that. We are responsible, reliable, trustworthy, straightforward, not manipulative and our faithfulness extends to our friends to everybody that we come into contact with and we are not easily swayed easily swayed in our emotions because if we want to be reliable and responsible we have to be able to rely on our, mon- our own emotional stability emotional stability has a great deal to do with this particular precept so we always practice the opposite the fourth one is one which is most easily broken gets broken all the time in fact and uh, is also the one that has a great deal of uh, importance in everybody's life Undertake the training to refrain from lying harsh words gossip backbiting and idle chatter it's the last one that gets broken all the time the idle chatter (laughs) And then, of course, what is idle chatter? It's talking for talking's sake. It's the cheapest, most easily available um, entertainment that we can find. And therefore, most popular. It's the most popular entertainment that is available. So, we should consider And here, we have an excellent opportunity to consider what is called the clear comprehension. What's the purpose of what I'm going to say? Is that what I'm going to do the most skillful means? Is it within the Dhamma? Okay, everything is all right. Then having done it, has it actually served the purpose? If not, why not? Maybe the means were not as as I thought next time differently. This is a very useful for counteracting idle chatter. Idle chatter is considered everything that doesn't have any meaning behind it, any purpose behind it. Now, if we inquire after a person's health, well, that has purpose behind it. We want to show that we're concerned if we mean it. But if it's just in order to have, um, not, to be, not to go inside, but just to have a, an entertainment for the mind, we should reconsider. Obviously, the opposite of lying is truthful speech. Truth is one of the ten paramis. Truthful speech is not only to others. You have in these past days, I'm sure, noticed how much speech varies to oneself. Chatter, chatter in the mind. So truthfulness in that is of the utmost importance. Truth to oneself about oneself, very difficult. We really don't want to know about it. But unless we give it at least a try to find out about ourselves, we're always going to walk around in a fog. And not only that, we're going to be a nuisance to others. And being a nuisance to others, of course, eventually, we might find ourselves isolated. People aren't that generous. So, truthfulness does not only extend in speech to other people, it extends to speech about oneself, to oneself. There is this very...